Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. And uh, for today's show, how about a modern-day Pandora? I opened the box. Yes, he pried open the lid, but thankfully no plagues as yet loosed upon the land because this Pandora is a whole lot more conscientious than the original. I wanted to open the box as carefully as possible so that we have as much control over the consequences as was feasible. He is Kevin Esfelt, and what he found in that box of his is a new form of genetic engineering. Genetic engineering on a mass scale. Known as the CRISPR gene drive, it is a way of altering the DNA, not of individual plants or individual animals, but of entire populations or even whole species. This is way bigger than GMOs, those hothouse organisms whose designer genes, in theory at least, are unlikely to spread and multiply in the wild. Now, with the CRISPR gene drive, if it works, the altered genes will spread and multiply relentlessly, as if driven to do so. That is where they get the name gene drive. And those genes, they will take over wild populations and maybe even change the course of evolution. Have I got your attention yet? Good, because here is Kevin to introduce himself and do some explaining. I'm Kevin Esfelt. I'm a technology development fellow at the Wies Institute of Harvard Medical School. And I'm an evolutionary sculptor. So I specialize in developing technologies that can harness evolution or keep evolution from breaking the things that we engineer. Uh, should I call you Kevin or should I call you God? Decidedly not God. <laughs> I like to refer to it as we are, we are two-year-olds in our understanding. And that's why we need to be cautious. As you say on your website, by carefully testing and applying these methods, that is these methods of evolutionary engineering, with wisdom and humility, we can begin to address difficult ecological problems for the benefit of humanity and the natural world. But we are talking about potentially meddling with evolution at the genetic level to an extent that human beings have never done before. I mean, we, we've definitely had our hands on the scales in the past by breeding animals, by shaping the environment in which things evolve. But to go in there and actually change their genes in a way that's inherited and spreads through populations, that's something uh, we've never done before, right? We've never done it in a deliberate and even halfway controllable fashion before. Now, you can certainly argue that it's a dramatic step because doing it intentionally is a dramatic step. But deliberately altering the traits of something in the wild is ecologically much less severe than introducing new species, which we do all the flipping time. What do you mean when you say new species? You mean things that we breed and then get loose? No, things that we bring from one continent to another, uh-huh. i.e. the ones that are alien species, which exotics, which we say are the ones that don't cause problems, but just take up a position in the ecosystem and fill a niche and don't tend to take it over or anything like that. And then the ones that we, we call true invasives that do take over, drive other species extinct and devastate natural ecosystems. And then when such a thing happens, we sometimes engage in what we call biocontrol. That is, we deliberately introduce yet another species to try to keep the invasive one in check. So I would argue that trying to deliberately change the genes of a population is less drastic an intervention than introducing an entirely new species. Well, let's get back to that value judgment a little later, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. We definitely are. Let's back up to the whole idea of what I called evolutionary engineering or what you called sculpting evolution. You are a biochemist or molecular biologist by training? 
All of the above. And a young one. I mean, you, you only got your PhD, what, five years ago or so? Yep, about that. So when did this idea first dawn on you? Where did you pick it up? A bit of background on me. I was very fortunate to, in that my parents took me to the, visit the Galapagos Islands when I was 10 years old. And seeing the diversity of life there and reading Darwin about his theory of evolution, I was convinced that this is what I wanted to do. And so I went to graduate school and worked on synthetic ecosystems for evolving things and then joined George Church's lab at Harvard just at a time when, there were, when we were discovering a new way of editing genomes. Did you say synthetic ecosystems? Yeah. So one of the things that in biology is really hard is molecules are very complex, and it's hard to predict exactly how they're going to fold, which means it's really hard to design a molecule, at least a really complex one like a biomolecule, a protein, that does what we want. Evolution does this all the time, of course. And so this raises the question, can we use evolution to create a useful molecule? And the answer is yes. Just like we can use evolution to breed better crops, we can use evolution to breed better molecules. So I set up a very, very simple synthetic ecosystem to do this very, very quickly, because evolution works better the more generations and the larger the population size you have to work with. And the largest populations are found in bacteria and the viruses that infect the bacteria. So I set up an ecosystem of these in which I could trick the viruses into evolving genes that I wanted them to. So evolution works by trying stuff out, and the good stuff survives and multiplies. And over the course of generations, you can get major changes as this tinkering goes on and on and on. So you're saying you did a kind of accelerated version of that in the lab? Yeah, the reasoning was, let's take the fastest evolving thing that we know about, which is this virus that infects common bacteria that live in our guts, E. coli. So I took this virus that infects them. It doesn't actually kill the cells. It just makes them make more virus. But in order to infect the cells, they, the virus carries a particular gene that encodes a protein that that gives it entry. It's the key into the cell. And so what I did is I took, took the gene encoding the key, and I removed it from the virus, and I gave it to the host cell that it infects. And then I programmed the host cell to only produce the key to the viruses that it's making when it gets infected, when the virus in turn did what I wanted. So the better the viruses were at doing what I wanted, the more of their critical key they got, and the more of their offspring were able to infect the next generation of host cells. And since their generation time was about, is about 15 minutes, and you can grow a billion of them in a small jar, that's some pretty powerful evolution. <laughs> I think we need to take a little detour into this, uh, this experiment of yours, or this system of yours. Um, you are saying that you were, in a sense, harnessing viruses and steering them in a direction you wanted. But, but what do you mean by getting them to do what you wanted them to do? We wanted to make a particular enzyme, which we call a polymerase. It's a protein that binds to DNA and transcribes it into RNA, which is the messenger molecule of the cell. And the most common version we use for this to make RNA in the laboratory is limited in that it will only start with particular bases of DNA. And that's limiting because it means you can only make RNA transcripts that start with a particular base. So we took this enzyme and I encoded it into the virus. So now the virus produced it. And into the cells, I took the gene encoding the key, and I, made, and I gave it a promoter that this polymerase would recognize, but I gave it a base it doesn't normally like. And then I produced a ton of these viruses, 
and I let them infect the cells, and then I continually pumped in new cells and pumped the waste out. And as they replicated, they had trouble getting into the cells at first, of course, because they couldn't because they weren't making very much key because the enzyme didn't like starting with that base. But some of them made mistakes when they were replicating the viral genome, and some of these mistakes were in the were in the gene we wanted to evolve, and some of those mistakes gave the, the polymerase the ability to to start with that new base very efficiently. And in any cell that had such a mutant, many more of the new viruses coming out of that cell had the key because their cell made more for them, because they had, they had the correct solution to the problem. And so, in a sense, you got the viruses to make the polymerase that you wanted, a more flexible polymerase, a polymerase that didn't have to start at the particular sequence of letters that you were talking about before, right? That's right. And in terms of utility of tools in, you know, in biomedicine, it's a minor one. But it's an example of a case where we could not have redesigned that polymerase by rational design to do that. Evolution was able to come up with a solution. Evolution did it by trial and error. Just yeah. a whole lot of trials, a whole lot of errors, and then a lucky strike. Yep, we say that engineering is all design, build, test. Well, evolution just does build, test, and then cycles through an awful lot. It just throws stuff against the wall. And sooner or later, something sticks, and, and it's actually a pretty decent analogy because it's often easier to stick to the stuff that's already sticking. Right, right, right. So you had done this as part of your PhD work, right? You had created this system that turns bacteria and viruses into a little chemical factory, a little chemical lab, you know, a research and development lab for designing novel um, biomolecules, new proteins yeah. and such. Yep. The system is called a phage-assisted continuous evolution, or PACE, because it's all about how fast it is. And phage, by the way, refers to those viruses. That's right. Sorry. Um, yeah. So that was done in, in David Liu's lab at Harvard University. So that was, that was my PhD, six years of my life right there. Wow. So 10 years old, you go to the Galapagos, and by early 20s, you've invented a, new, a whole new system for creating molecules using bacteria and viruses. I wouldn't say early 20s, six years of life on top of college, but yeah, late 20s. Still, still, pretty good track record. But now we come to the subject uh, we want to spend most of our interview talking about, your interest then in sculpting actual evolution, the system you just talked about, the PACE system. This is a very artificial thing. This is not something that's going to be happening in the wild. Definitely not. Right. But actually changing wild populations actually altering, you know, the future evolution of some life forms on Earth. I know that people who are listening to this, at least some of them are saying, whoa, this is crazy. Uh, maybe it's not impractical, but it sounds wildly ambitious and maybe dangerous and, uh, and arrogant. I want to reassure those listeners we will talk about all those questions because they're very much on your mind. But so when did this sort of um, twist in your story happen? So to tell this one, we really have to get into the discovery of the CRISPR system, which was laid out by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier in a, in a paper in 2012. And what they described was essentially a pair of molecular scissors that could be used to let us edit genomes. Yeah, let's, uh, let's give a little more background on CRISPR, because this is really one of the biggest stories, if not the biggest story, in molecular biology in many a year. I'll get you started here, Kevin. You take it from there. CRISPR is something that was actually discovered a good deal earlier than the paper you're talking about in bacteria. That's right. The first signs of it were recognized in the 1980s, but no one actually picked up on what it meant and really unraveled it until the late aughts. 
What exactly was it, though, that they found in bacteria? So it's sort of a mantra in, in biology lately that we will think that we, meaning the eukarya, meaning complex multicellular organisms for the most part, can do things that simple bacteria just could never do. And one of those things that we thought they couldn't do is they didn't have adaptive immune systems. So we have immune systems that, in effect, harness evolution for our own benefit in that we have lots of immune cells that preferentially replicate when they gain the ability to efficiently recognize a pathogen or really any foreign molecule. Uh, in other words, they learn. They learn, they learn who's the enemy and they learn how to attack it. Yep. And because we can do this on a, essentially a single cell level in our bodies where we can select individual immune cells that are good at fighting the enemy and preferentially allow those to replicate so that we can create armies that are tailored to defend us. So that's how our immune systems work. And we call this an acquired immune system because a baby doesn't really have this. Each one of us has to learn how to recognize every new invader over and over again. And that's why when you get sick, typically you start getting better from, from most colds and so forth on day four or so, because that's when your acquired immune system is now really learning to recognize the pathogen and is cranking out these immune cells to, to combat it. So it was long thought that we could do this, but bacteria couldn't do anything that neat. They didn't have any sort of acquired immunity, right? Well, it turns out that they do. And it's this CRISPR system that allows them to do it. And it's actually, it's very simple for them in that what they mainly have to worry about is viruses infecting them. And viruses typically take over the cell by injecting their DNA, or in some cases, RNA, the genetic information encoding them into the cell, where it uses the host cell's machinery to replicate itself and produce viral proteins that in effect take over the cell and make it spit out more viruses. So what the bacteria learned how to do with this CRISPR system was in any cell that managed to survive this, because sometimes they do, they would incorporate a bit of that viral genome, the DNA sequence, into the bacterial genome in this special section known as a CRISPR array. And then they would transcribe that array to make RNA that then they used to find any matching DNA, i.e. the original viral genome, and they would cut it. <laughs> Let's unpack that just a tiny bit. So you're saying that these bacteria, these lowly dumb bacteria, were sort of keeping a running record of what sort of invaders they had glimpsed in the past. They would keep a sample of the DNA from invading viruses, store it in their own DNA, and use that as a kind of, um, oh, you know, fingerprint file to identify future invaders. That's exactly right. So if any invader comes calling, and they've seen that particular signature before, then they know it, and they can defend themselves. And they can defend themselves by... By cutting the incoming viral genome so that it can't be replicated. And that means that even if that cell still dies, it's not going to let the virus replicate and infect all of, all of its clones. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's get into the cutting, because that's where CRISPR really shines. Yeah, so the way it works is the cell has stored these snippets of viral DNA and it transcribes them into making RNA, which is typically thought of as the messenger of the cell. And so these RNAs have the recognition sequence that, is, that corresponds to the viral DNA and then, in, and then a sequence tag that folds into a particular structure that is recognized by the CRISPR system. And so the CRISPR system will bind to this RNA sequence tag that says, essentially, here's a targeting element. Go and cut anything that matches 
the guide sequence. And so it essentially scans the cell, and whenever it finds DNA, it looks for a particular couple of bases that it likes to bind to. And whenever it finds that, it opens up the DNA, because DNA comes in two strands that are bound together. So it opens it up so it can access one strand, and then it tries to insert its RNA to see if it matches. And if there is a good enough match, then it will cut both strands of the DNA. I'm playing the uh, the dumb guy in this uh, conversation. So I like simple analogies. A simple analogy here is you've got a hit squad you're sending out there. You give them some photos and say, <laughs> go stab the guy who matches this photo in this spot. Sort of. Um, the really neat thing about it, though, is it's, is it's really digital recognition. So it's not like a fingerprint. I mean, it's, it's DNA-based recognition. It has a copy, in effect, of the original viral DNA sequence. And so it can just compare that to the DNA, and if it binds correctly, and there's no bulges or lumps that indicate that there's a mismatch, then it knows it's got the perp. Got it. So again, it takes its file of uh, known culprits. It transcribes what's called a um, what's called a guide RNA. Right. It creates a yep. a guide RNA that perfectly matches up with these uh, invasive viruses that it has experienced before. It sends this guide RNA out with a special enzyme, right? An enzyme that's going to do the cutting and sort of is going to facilitate this this assassination. You could call it a righteous defense. After all, the bacterium is just defending itself. Exactly. But the protein here, the enzyme, is the muscle. It's going to do the work. That's right. The guide RNA is just the instructions telling it what to look for. And the protein is so important. Tell us about it. So... Here's where I could get a little technical because there's a bunch of different types of CRISPR systems, it turns out. So I'm just going to tell you about the one that turned out to be most useful because it has a single protein that does all the work. That is, it's a single protein that recognizes the guide RNA, binds to it, goes and finds DNA, looks for a particular sequence that it likes, which in the case of the variant we like, we like to use best in the laboratory is GG. So whenever it finds a GG, then it, well, still holding the guide RNA, opens up the DNA inserts the piece of the guide RNA, checks to see if there's a match, and if there is a match, it cuts both strands of the DNA, all done by a single protein. And once that DNA is cut, game over. Game over. So this protein ended up being dubbed Cas9, which people have said um, is analogous to Ice9 in Cat's Cradle, the Vonnegut novel. But uh, it is probably, at this point, one of what I would say the four pillars of molecular biology in the laboratory. And just to run through those, those are what we call PCR, which is the ability to make lots of DNA. That's polymerase chain reaction. Mm -hmm. There's DNA sequencing, just so we know what we're looking at, reading the genome. There's DNA synthesis, being able to make a particular sequence of DNA, whatever we want. And then there is CRISPR, because CRISPR is what lets us precisely cut and therefore edit the genome. So do you guys have a, a sort of holy recitation of these four sacred things? No, I'm still proselytizing. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> well, that's the background on CRISPR. Discovered in bacteria, it is their own sort of adaptive immune system uh, against viruses. Pretty marvelous. But the next chapter is figuring out that we can put this to use ourselves. Absolutely. So... The original paper that Doudna and Charpentier and their laboratories published came out in the summer of 2012. 
And it didn't spark a lot of media attention at the time, but to all scientists in the relevant fields, it was clear that this was the key. Because we know already that a cell that has a double strand break will often repair it by incorporating new DNA if you give it a template that matches the broken ends on the sides. So the problem was we couldn't cut DNA wherever we wanted. There were a couple of technologies that let us do it sort of, but they required us to build a new protein from scratch to cut any given DNA sequence. So every time we wanted to cut a different sequence, we had to design and build a new protein from scratch. And we already talked about how, how hard designing is. So then CRISPR comes along, and you can use the same protein every time, Cas9, and you just feed it a different guide RNA for any sequence you want to cut. And the truly remarkable thing about it is it works in just about every organism there is. It's sort of a running joke that you can deliver Cas9 and guides into whatever organism you want. And initially, as, as a new field of scientists who work with some obscure organism, will say, oh, no, we can't get it to work. It's toxic, et cetera, da, da, da. And we said, just try it, run through these sets of controls and so on. And then you check back with them a few months later and, oh, yeah, it's working great. There are really no confirmed examples of it not working, which is remarkable because throughout the kingdoms of life, different organisms do lots of really weird things with their DNA that the CRISPR system in bacteria has probably never seen. So like our DNA is, is wrapped very tightly around molecules called histones. That's how it's packaged because we have you know, meters of DNA that have to be spooled down tightly enough so they fit inside of a single cell. And we do it by wrapping around histones, which bacteria don't do. So CRISPR systems have never seen that evolutionarily, but they can still cut it. These are some magic scissors for sure. It is magic. <laughs> it may as well be magic. I mean, as Clark said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Now, we're learning how Cas9 works. doesn't mean you can't understand how magic works. But by, but by you know, the instinctive, wow, it's magic. So in the past, things were really complicated. You're saying you had to custom make various enzymes or, you know, like create a, a really special pair of scissors for every single thing you wanted to cut, That's for right. every sequence, uh, genetic sequence. Whereas CRISPR, these are universal scissors. They'll cut any old thing. And all you need to do is provide them, as you say, with this guide RNA, with this set of instructions, and they'll go out and do the cutting as so far as we know in any organism on Earth. Although, obviously, you haven't tested more than a handful of organisms at this right. point. <laughs> because there's an awful lot out there. But it's striking in just how many systems this still works. Well, it works in everything from a virus, the simplest proto-organism we know of just about, right? Yep. To a human being, all right? And it has been tested in embryonic humans, yes? Well, it's been tested in doubly fertilized human embryos that were non-viable and had zero chance of being developed into a human. And even that created a huge tempest in a teapot. Right, right. When you talk about embryos, you get into, you know, the abortion controversy, but these were miscarriages essentially, right? Yes, they had zero chances of ever becoming a human. But it was proof that CRISPR works in human cells. So actually the first example of what, um, so I, I was part of the church lab team that first showed that it worked in human cells, um, which is a beginning of 2013. Our work was published in Science, along with a team from MIT, and then Jennifer Doudna's group published in eLife a, a week or so later. And then, a, but we all basically showed the same thing, which is that it works in human cells in a dish, not embryos, just normal, um, immortal human cells in a dish. 
And again, when you say the church lab, we're not talking about uh, anything clerical here, nothing religious. We're, talk, talk we're talking about, about George Church's lab, who is <laughs> one of the leading geneticists in the world, and a really amazing guy. At Harvard, yeah. He's, he's quite a story <laughs> himself. I was reading about him just the other day. But give us a sense how big a leap this is from the kinds of genetic engineering that we've had really for quite a while, where it was possible to remove genes from organisms and insert new genes, to this CRISPR system, which just seems to make everything faster, cheaper, easier, right? That's pretty much it. It's not that we couldn't do it before, although we could only do it in a few organisms. So, for example, we could edit the genomes of mice before, but we couldn't really do rats just because of differences in how their embryos develop, for example. And then we had these new technologies where we could build a new protein to cut a new sequence. And so that, those worked in most organisms, but there were only a handful of labs around the world that could do it at all because it was so complicated and it was so difficult that you had to build a new protein from scratch for every sequence you wanted to cut. So it just wasn't practical. But now you have a system that pretty much every molecular biology lab that is reasonably well-equipped around the world, and that includes a lot of undergraduate laboratories and even some high school labs, can use to edit genomes. Uh, You're raising all kinds of red flags when you talk about editing genomes in high school. But... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Bacteria and yeast only, for the most part, but yes. <laughs> still, still. Oh, my goodness. How easy is it then? I mean, how cheap is it? How fast is it? So it depends on your organism because you're still, you, know, you still have to grow up a new organism to see if it worked. But if you're talking, say, yeast, you're looking at a couple of days. And in terms of how cheap is it, well, if you have the DNA, all you have to do is deliver in the DNA. And because you have PCR or you can just grow up a lot of bacteria that, that contain it, you, can, you basically have unlimited DNA, so the cost is almost nothing. Um, so really, it's pretty much down to the cost of making the DNA that you want to insert. Uh, you mean the new gene, whatever new, new gene, gene you want to stick whatever in. Whatever you want to put in to the yeast. And, and so if I wanted to go out and do myself some crispering right now, what would I need? You'd need a piece of DNA encoding the Cas9 gene. You'd need a piece of DNA encoding the guide RNA, which would direct it to cut whatever gene you wanted to edit in the yeast genome. And then you'd need a piece of DNA of whatever it was you wanted to put in the yeast genome to replace your target. Can you order this stuff up? Yep. That's where that other pillar, DNA synthesis, comes in. You can just order it up, and it comes in the mail. So now we've got a super simple DIY kit for altering genomes. Assuming you can get the DNA into the cell that then leads to the next generation of the organism, which is why yeast and bacteria are really easy because they're single-celled, right? You get it into any cell, and that cell can then reproduce. But if you want to get into something like a worm or a fly or something like that, then you have to get into the germline, that is, the cells that will produce sperm and eggs. And you have to do that without killing the organism, and that turns out to be a lot harder. Well, I'm, I'm kind of relieved to hear that. But um, again, I feel like we, we might be getting ahead of ourselves to even talk about getting it into the germline. That is, as you say, the, the, the cells that are inherited and therefore will affect future generations and even, who knows, entire species. You can also apply this very selectively to specific cells that uh, maybe have a malfunction, uh, you know, a genetic um, defect. Isn't that where people's thoughts really went to first, we can start using this for gene therapy. 
Yeah, so it really has invigorated the field of gene therapy, although some of the main problems with gene therapy still do remain, and that is how do you get your editing machinery into enough of the relevant cells in the patient? But for some genetic disorders, it's possible that you don't actually need that many corrected cells. Having only a few would be enough. So especially if if you're missing some critical factor for, say, blood clotting, you don't need that many cells in your blood to suddenly start producing the factor to restore, you know, to restore normal function. And so with CRISPR, you can just go in and fix the defect. In those specific cells? In those specific cells, or rather in a small fraction of of your overall body cells. But for some disorders, a small fraction is enough. We do have to be careful because there's the issue of, okay, CRISPR will cut a sequence that we want, but will it only cut that sequence? Because remember, there's 3 billion base pairs in our genome. And that's a lot of sequence to scan through and look for something that perfectly matches a 20 base pair sequence, which is what CRISPR looks for. Oh, yeah. The DNA alphabet only has four letters. It does. And therefore... There's a lot of sequences throughout the genome that are identical or very, very close when you're only dealing with four letters. Yes. Statistically, it takes 18 bases until you can have a reasonable expectation that you have a unique sequence in the genome. And in practice, there are, as you said, many repetitive elements. So as it turns out, CRISPR is not completely perfect. That is, it does not demand a perfect 20-base pair match. Sometimes if there's a couple of bases off, it will still cut. Ooh. And so that can be a problem. So a lot of the research we've done since that, those original papers in 2013 was developing ways of making it more specific. And there's two main ways of doing that. One is if instead of doing the 20 base pair guide sequence that it's looking for, this, the signature mugshot, if you truncate that so it's only 18 bases, what it seems to be looking for is sort of the total, at least in part, the total binding affinity that is, how many matches do you have total? So if you only give it 18, then it needs to have a, a higher fraction of them be accurate. Uh-huh. That makes it much more specific and safe. And that was discovered by Keith Jung's lab at Harvard. And then the other one uh, we in the church lab developed first, which was to say, okay, normally the CRISPR system cuts both strands of DNA. But if we change the Cas9 protein so it can only cut one strand by essentially um, deleting the critical residue that allows it to cut the other strand. So now it can only cut one strand. Then you have something that what we call a nickase, because instead of cutting both strands of the DNA, it will cut only one, which creates a nick. So a nick typically just gets sealed up right away because the two strands, the two, the two sides of the, of the DNA never come apart because right. the other strand is still intact. Right. So an off-target nick almost never creates a mutation or any problems. It just gets, it just gets fixed. But if you program CRISPR with a nickase to, to nick two different sites and to nick the opposing strands, so basically right near each other, then you can effectively create a double strand break with two nicks. So then you do that to do at the site of your editing, but any off-target sites elsewhere in the genome is just nicks and so they don't do anything. The overall point of the nicking is that two nicks equals a break, but one nick equals nothing. So we can program two nicks to happen right next to each other in order to get our break. But all of the off-targets are just nicks that are, on average, nowhere near any other nicks because you're, you have, a dozen, say, a dozen off-targets amongst three billion bases. They're not going to be anywhere near each other. So what you're saying is this is a system for making the CRISPR system even more accurate and, uh, and safe, right? Because 
instead of just finding a more or less match with a sequence and, and cutting the entire pair of DNA strands, you're saying you need to find two matches to create two NICs that are aligned, right? That are right next to each other. That are right next to each other. It has to be within, within 100, 150 base pairs of one another out of 3 billion. So, so the odds of two off-targets being near each other are basically zero. Great. Whereas we, we'd, of course, program it to nick two sites that are near each other in the desired gene that we want to edit. Right. So again, setting it up so our hitman does not uh, get an innocent person, get the wrong target. Right. Uh, <laughs> so it's almost like, you know, you got to tag them first to make sure they're the right one and then only, only works on a tagged person. Got it, got it, got it. So I think we left one little part of the story out um, earlier, which is we, we've described somewhat how the Cas9 protein with its guide RNA can go out and, and target a section of uh, DNA and cut it out. But then getting a new gene in there, which is the other half of the gene editing story, how do you splice that new gene into the, the gap that you've created? There we have to go into what does the cell do when it discovers that there's a double strand break, that the DNA has been cut. And so there's two different pathways that it can use to fix the damage. One is it can just jam the ends together. And so this will work, but it often makes mistakes. So often you'll lose a base or add a base at the junction. So there'll be a mutation there. So that can be useful for us because if, we, if we're doing experiments in the laboratory and want to figure out what a gene does, one of the best ways is to break it and see what happens. So if you just target a native gene with CRISPR and don't give it any, any other DNA, it'll typically just mutate that target site, break the gene, and then we can see what happens. So that's very useful as a laboratory tool. But if you want to do something like gene therapy, you typically want to precisely change the sequence to an exact one that you want, typically the fixed version. If you happen to have a broken copy, we want to introduce the normal functional one. So to do that, you introduce literally the exact DNA sequence that you want to be inserted. And the key here then is that the cell, when it uses the other pathway, looks for sequences that match those on either end of the break. And the reason it does this is because in most organisms, you have two sets of chromosomes. So for most genes, you have two copies. And what it's doing is it's looking for the other copy. Because if it can find the other chromosome and the homologous gene, and it creates a perfect copy of that one in place of the double strand break, then that's almost certain to be functional. It's hedging its bets. Mm-hmm. So it goes out and looks for the replacement part um, that's sitting out there exactly. on the other chromosome, and it identifies it uh, through those, those matches uh, you said before, right? So that's what it's going to do. But in this case, you're tricking it. In this case, you're tricking it because you're introducing a bunch of other replacement parts that look pretty close to the same. And of course, so long as those surrounding sequences are the same, it doesn't know which one is the correct part and which one, which one is your fabrication. If your fabrication has something extra in the middle, it has no way to know. So it will just incorporate it anyway. I note, though, however, um, in the, the normal scenario where you lose a bit of DNA on one chromosome and you go and look to, to the other chromosome to find its match and splice that into the um, defective chromosome, you may not be getting exactly the same gene, right? I mean, That's right. one You're is maternal, one is... happened to be on the other chromosome. Right. So if you, know, you get uh, one set of chromosomes from mom and one from dad, 
and dad's gets cut out, right? If a gene yep. from dad gets cut out, then you got two mom genes um, once That's the repair right. is done. And that turns out to be really important. So I think it was about six months after our original publication, I started wondering, well, what would happen, I wondered, if you encoded the CRISPR system next to the DNA you were inserting? So in this case, you're, you're giving it its new part, but you're sneaky, and in the middle, you insert not only your, your new sequence, whatever you want it to be, but you also put in the DNA encoding the Cas9 protein and your guide RNAs. So the idea here is, what if you make genome editing itself encoded in DNA? So that, say you have, as you said, you have a mom version and a dad version. Well, what if mom's version has the CRISPR system that tells it to cut dad's version? <sighs> then when those two find each other in the cell, either upon fertilization or you can program it to happen much later, the CRISPR system will cut dad's version and the cell will then say, oh, we have a double strand break. Well, let's go find mom's version and copy it over. So now you can guarantee that your edited mom's version plus the CRISPR system gets copied over onto dad's chromosome. That is, you go from one copy to two copies. And if you have two copies, of course, that means that all of your offspring, whenever you reproduce, are going to inherit one. And so if they inherit one, and suppose the other parent, again, has dad's version, well, the CRISPR system is going to cut it again and copy over mom's version. And this is going to happen again and again down through the generations. Again, this is only what we call vertical transmission. It's only parents to offspring, parents to offspring, parents to offspring. It never goes from, two, from one unrelated organism to another like a virus. It's only parents to offspring down. But because you can virtually ensure that mom's gene is going to be inherited every generation, you can drive your edit through a population of organisms. Okay, I'm going to stop you there, Kevin, because this is almost like the climax of our story here, really the latest chapter of the CRISPR story, which is something that's called gene drives. But because I'm a systematic sort of guy, I don't want to leave too many strands hanging from the regular CRISPR story where it's just used to stick a gene, you know, a new gene into the genome. Genome editing. Right. How far has it gotten? Has it been, has it been used for anything practical yet? Um, it's in the clinic for various gene therapies. Um, being tested. Okay. There, there's an anti-HIV one, and there are a ton in development. So basically, if you, can, if you can name a genetic disease wherein one single replacement of a DNA sequence will fix it, then there is an ongoing trial to use CRISPR to do that. And uh, a lot of fingers crossed, a lot of money being invested, a whole CRISPR industry yeah. um, exploding. companies um, developing this, tremendous patent fight over who has the rights to CRISPR, which I don't want to get into because it's not really about science. It's a big deal. Well, so to wrap up the first part of our story about CRISPR, the, the part that deals with somatic cells, body cells that are not in inherited, these are the counterpart to the germ cells uh, that we talked about earlier that give rise to sperm and eggs and really do affect uh, your descendants. So right now people are in the early stages of testing CRISPR-based gene therapies for a lot of genetic diseases. And uh, it could be a real breakthrough. It could be amazing, really, uh, if they can start fixing these diseases by repairing uh, defective genes. By somatic cell gene therapy, yes. Somatic gene cell therapy. But this other thing uh, that we're now going to talk about, this really amazing 
concept of the gene drive, we are talking about the germline. This we are talking about inheritance. We are talking about evolution and uh, later generations. So you described earlier a way in which CRISPR could be used not simply to implant a single gene in uh, an organism's genome, but could be used to implant a whole CRISPR system in the genome, a system that would then implant another CRISPR system uh, in another chromosome, and so on and so on and so on. But the important bit is that it doesn't just copy the CRISPR system, it also copies whatever you put next to it, which in most cases was your original edit. So it's a way of using CRISPR to drive that original edit, which you made in the laboratory, to effectively cause genome editing to reoccur in every generation, even in the wild. Right. So if one weren't using this kind of system, if one were just doing conventional gene editing, and one wanted to alter a gene, and I know this is a scenario you've talked about a lot, so why not just use the by now classic example? Let's just dream a little bit about one of uh, humanity's worst diseases, malaria, and the fact that it's transmitted by mosquitoes, and the fact that um, you might be able to alter the genome of mosquitoes so that they did not carry the malarial parasite. In fact, there are some genes in mosquitoes that confer resistance to malaria already. Already. But they're only advantageous to the mosquito when it's virtually guaranteed to get malaria. And otherwise, it's, it's very costly to the mosquito. So they're only found very rarely in areas where, in the worst areas where malaria is just, is just there all the time. So they don't make that much of a difference. But let's just say we wanted to make malaria-resistant mosquitoes the rule, not the exception. And we used traditional gene editing, and we just stuck that gene in a few thousand mosquitoes. Let's even say we take a bunch of different you know, we also add in some extra stuff that we've cooked up in the laboratory that makes resistance even better. Okay. And so we make a bunch of mosquitoes like this, and we then decide we're going to release them all into the wild. The problem is mosquitoes in the wild evolved to be really good at surviving and reproducing in the wild, or at least in the environment that they evolved in. And what that means is that they're pretty much finely honed machines for survival and reproduction. If we mess with them in pretty much any way, we're going to break something that is important for that. And that means that whether we use traditional selective breeding over many, many generations or modern CRISPR genome editing, our changes are going to be selected against, that is by natural selection. Natural selection is going to weed out our changes when we release any form of edited organism into the wild. Yeah, so I mean, you you tamper with the uh, finely tuned mosquito, and it's kind of likely that your new version isn't going to do as well as those that are perfectly adapted to their environment, and your mutation is going to die out. But, but it's surprising how non-obvious this is, <laughs> because a lot of people are very concerned that our experiments in the laboratory might suddenly spread through the wild, and in reality, that risk is it's not zero. There's an exception to pretty much every rule. But Darwin said that natural selection is a power incessantly ready for action and is as immeasurably superior to man's feeble efforts as the works of nature are to those of art. Well, we'll see if he's still correct about that uh, in the CRISPR era. But I wanted to get to a point that you've made many times in describing why a gene drive is so effective and why traditional gene editing is not. And it's not just the fact that any mutation that you introduce into a wild population is likely to be a liability 
and cause the mutants to die off, right, over time. Okay. But, it, but it's also just the pure mathematics of it. If you implant a gene in a mosquito, you release it into the wild, and it breeds with a wild mosquito, it's going to give one set of chromosomes to the offspring, and the wild parent is going to give one set of chromosomes for the offspring. And therefore, that mutant gene is only on one of two chromosomes in the offspring. And the same thing is going to happen when the offspring breed. I'd almost say it's like um, if I gave you a counterfeit $5 bill and said, go out, spend it, have a great time, Kevin, and you did. And a year later, we checked and saw that thing still circulated. It would still be just $5. That's a great analogy. However, with these gene drives, you're not just implanting a gene. You are implanting a gene copying system in a way so that when that uh, mutant mosquito goes out and breeds with a wild mosquito and produces an offspring that has only one of these special CRISPR-equipped genes in it, that special CRISPR-equipped gene goes out and then changes the other chromosome so that now, uh, to go back to our mom and dad analogy, let's say this offspring has two daddies. Or two mummies. Or, or two mummies. Depending on how you want to do it, yes. <laughs> yeah. So now you've got 100% of its uh, of that gene is now the, the altered CRISPR version, and so on down the line. So instead of giving you a $5 counterfeit bill, I have given you a printing press. In effect, yes. And we look at the economy a couple of years later. It's not only a printing press. It's one that takes, for every counterfeit $5 bill it puts into circulation, it takes a legit bill out of circulation. Yes. That's one way to do it. I mean, of course, in reality, it's actually it's actively converting the real ones into counterfeit ones, such as it were. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a better <laughs> <But> yeah. explanation, <laughs> although it doesn't uh, really hold up in, in the, the world of counterfeiting. But either way, you would find, uh, you know, in due time, a world of counterfeit $5 bills. But there is one thing that I should that I should really emphasize, and that is, I thought I was pretty clever for thinking this up, but it didn't take me very long to think back and think, well, wait a minute, wasn't there a paper a little while back about where they did something like this in mosquitoes using a DNA-cutting enzyme that can't really be retargeted, but they put the target site in one group of mosquitoes and they put the gene encoding the very specific scissors that cut it in the other chromosome, and then they mated them and this sort of drive happened? Wait a minute, doesn't ice one which happens to be the enzyme that they use that comes from yeast, doesn't it work that way? Isn't this like something that nature does? And it turns out the answer was yes. I went back and, look, and looked it up, and there's this whole field that's been developed around what's called gene drive. And what I had thought of in terms of this a CRISPR gene drive was really just a derivative of an idea first put forth by Austin Burt, a scientist at Imperial College London, who back in 2003 said, hey, there are these enzymes like this one from yeast that cut DNA very specifically in one particular site, and then that results in copying of the gene encoding the scissors over onto the other chromosome. We could use this if we could retarget these enzymes to change wild populations. That was Bert's insight back in 2003. Problem was it never went anywhere because you can't retarget those enzymes to cut whatever sequence you want. They're too specific. They're too specific. But CRISPR is essentially the answer. There's also some additional considerations in terms of evolutionary stability um, of why you can't just use one cut site that really comes down to what happens if the cell uses the other pathway and just jams the ends together and creates a mutation. Then you have a mutated version that can't be cut by the drive. And if the drive is less reproductively fit, that is, if offspring carrying the drive 
are less likely to survive and reproduce than those that have the drive-resistant version, then the drive-resistant version is just going to outcompete your drive as normal, and you're back to where you started. Drive doesn't work. Yeah. So if you want your drive to actually take over, you have to ensure that you don't accidentally produce these drive-resistant alleles, which means that you have to cut multiple sites because, again, CRISPR is digital, so we can program it to cut a bunch of different sites at once, all in the same gene. And if that gene is important for fitness, then if the cell ever does the jam the ends together pathway, it will delete a large chunk of that important gene, which is going to be worse than whatever you're doing with the drive. So CRISPR, because it lets us cut multiple sequences of important genes, not only lets us do this gene drive for most genes in, in lots of different kinds of organisms, it actually lets us build them so that they're evolutionarily stable. Hmm. So that was really my only intellectual contribution to this. Austin Burt worked everything else out before. I only realized that CRISPR was the answer not just because it let you cut what you wanted, but because you could do multi-site cutting and be evolutionarily stable. So you are the guy, though, who thought of the CRISPR-based gene drive, not knowing about Austin Burt's earlier gene drive idea until later. That's accurate, yes. I opened the box. That's why I feel responsible for it is because I opened the box and showed how you could do it and make it evolutionarily stable. But that's why it's my responsibility to make sure that we use it with wisdom and humility. It's all possible. So um, when the earth is overrun by uh, CRISPR critters of all varieties, including monstrous ones, people will look back and curse the name of Kevin Esfeld. Is that what you're worried about? It will certainly mean that, I've, that I have failed, yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's hope it doesn't get to that point. <laughs> uh, but this is a system. Let's remind listeners uh, who hopefully have followed us this far. This is a system for introducing altered genes into organisms in the wild in such a way that those genes could take over the populations and essentially change the species, or at least the local population. That's right. If there's no gene flow between two populations, then the drive can't spread either. Because they don't intermingle, but still. And that's also worth pointing out some limitations. So this only works on things that have a mom and a dad, right? Yes, sexual reproduction. Sexual reproduction. So bacteria, viruses, everything like that, completely out. Plants that can reproduce vegetatively, that is just by, just by butting off sort of thing, new shoots, doesn't work. Yep. Even things that reproduce both sexually and asexually, really not going to work very well. Because if you're imposing a, a cost, it's just going to switch over to doing asexual reproduction primarily in order to avoid it. So you're limited only to pretty much exclusively sexually reproducing populations. And then there's the next barrier, which is that it's vertically transmitted, parents to offspring, which means that in order for a gene drive element to double in frequency in the population, it needs to first be rare, because if it mates with itself, it doesn't get any any advantage. But it also needs to have a generation path. And so in a mosquito, generation time is a couple of weeks. So you don't have to release that many mosquitoes to have converted a large fraction of the population a couple years later because mosquitoes reproduce very quickly. And the same is true to a slightly lesser extent to things like mice. So one other idea I would like to throw out there is perhaps rather than exclusively talking about these admittedly far greater humanitarian crises in the form of malaria, dengue, schistosomiasis, abroad, We have our own infectious disease plagues here, and they're not as big of a deal over in California, although there are certainly some instances. But here in the Northeast, Lyme disease is a major problem. 
Oh, we got that here too. You have it here. We have it. We have it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Lyme disease, it's from the ticks, of course. But the ticks pick it up from native rodents. So here in the Northeast, it's primarily this white-footed m- mouse that is the reservoir of the Lyme bacterium. So the ticks bite the mice and get infected, and then if they bite us, we get infected. So what if we were to make a mouse that was immune to the Lyme bacterium, and then we coupled that with a gene drive to spread the trait through all the mice? Take away the reservoir, ticks no longer get infected, children no longer get infected. That is something that I think we might want to consider. Here's where we're getting into responsibility, though. I'm throwing it out there because we haven't done any experiments on this whatsoever. And there's a reason for that. The public discussion should happen before the experiments. And they should inform whether or not the experiments ever happen. And if the public discussion decides that they should happen, it should guide which experiments are done. And that is very different from the way that we traditionally do science. But with gene drives, I think that's the only way we can do it. So far, most of the um, the dreams of this sculpting evolution that I've seen on your site and, and uh, elsewhere have to do with ridding ourselves of various kinds of pest populations, be they plants or animals, invasive weeds, um, disease-bearing insects, uh, or arachnids in the case of ticks with Lyme disease. Is that where all the thinking is going these days? So I have a dream that we can do better. It's based on the idea that nature speaks the language of DNA. And in a way, we are finally learning to speak it. Right now, when nature does something that we don't like, that hurts us, our response is we use chemistry and physics. That is, we spread broadly toxic pesticides that kills the problematic pest and pretty much all the other insects in the area because we have to target something that's very conserved and so it hits all of them. Or we use bulldozers to drain the swamp. No more mosquitoes, right? Of course, no more wetlands, no more all those other species either. What if you you have a problem with a pest species, say an insect is eating all your crops. If you have a gene drive and you understand how olfaction works in that pest, what if you just program it to go about its merry way? Still there, but it just dislikes the taste of your crop. <laughs> it's still in the ecosystem. It's still, you know, it's it, you haven't changed its interactions with anything other than the crop. You've just made it ignore the crop. So that way you don't have to kill it. It's a much more elegant way of, of speaking with, interacting with nature than anything that we can do right now. But mostly you are thinking about altering organisms so that, so that they get along nicer with us. We are a selfish species that way. <laughs> Which, you know, in, in the ideal case would be quite a wonderful thing. Yes, so uh, we attacked malaria in the past using DDT. And we found out, well, DDT has other consequences, right? It really did a good job on the mosquitoes in many cases. And banning DDT resulted in, you know, a comeback for malaria in some parts mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah. But you're saying, well, why not just attack it at its source? So, yeah, here, here's the thing. What is commonly considered one of the greatest triumphs of humanity was eradicating smallpox from the wild. That's really one of our signature achievements as a species, was ridding ourselves of perhaps the single worst pathogen to ever afflict us, hopefully forever. The question then becomes, if that really was such a triumph, why is the malaria parasite any different? Why are schistosomes 
blood flukes. That is the next worst tropical disease after malaria, nearly as bad in terms of its outcomes. Why are they any different? There's only a couple of malaria parasites. There's only a couple of schistosomes that really infect a lot of people. Four species, right? Do we want a world without them? It's not like they're going to die off in an information sense. We still have their sequences on a computer. Well, you know the fears. You've raised them yourself. So we start tinkering with the genetics of wild populations, create a whole new mosquito, and the law of unintended consequences takes hold. We have not only screwed with the ecosystem in ways we didn't understand so that species that depend on mosquitoes or something like that are now impacted, but we've also set loose this this mechanism inside of the genomes of these species that may take unforeseen directions, right? So we've talked about the fact that CRISPR itself might mutate. It's true. And the possibility that a gene drive might mutate and evolve in the course of spreading through the population is something that we very much need to investigate. In fact, that's one of my major research directions now is creating with appropriate confinement a system in which we can study gene drives in populations that are large enough and fast reproducing enough to actually recapitulate what we're looking at in the wild. And that's by looking at nematode worms, which reproduce every three and a half days, and we can grow them in the billions in the laboratory. So populations of billions and a 100-generation experiment in a year is pretty good in terms of evaluating whether a gene drive, which we can recapitulate the same sequence in the nematode as we would for any wild organism we're thinking about. That's a good way of determining is the drive going to evolve to spread into, say, this related species, which we tried to design it so that it wouldn't cut the related species version of the gene? But is that actually true, or will it evolve? We need a system to answer questions like that, because you can't just throw up your hands and say, I don't know, maybe, is it worth it? You've got to find out if possible. So understanding how these CRISPR gene drives will evolve is of paramount importance. And the same is true for ecological testing. And you might say, well, how on earth can you do ecological testing of a gene drive? Yeah. Without... Well, I would say you take the organism and you've edited it to make whatever change you want you're thinking of propagating through the population. You add in the gene drive components, but you scramble the guides. That is, you scramble the bases in the guides such that they don't target anything at all. So now you have an organism that doesn't display CRISPR gene drive but it encodes all the same genes that the actual thing you're considering releasing does, except that the CRISPR system is targeting nothing instead of what you would actually target. That is nearly identical, apart from the fact that it doesn't drive, to what you're thinking of changing the wild population into. So you release enough of those into an isolated area, or even try to artificially remove the natives, and then just swamp it with those, and then you look and see what happens to the ecosystem. And these are organisms in which it will not take over the, which it will not take over the because, wild population. Because it's not targeting anything. If you want to be even safer, you can just not encode any guides at all if you're really worried about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in practice, it's just scrambling them would be plenty. Just deliberately insert guides that don't target any sequence in the genome. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I, I, I can think of the objections that this kind of experimentation uh, can't really be done in a way that's going to be generalizable. You know, ecosystems are so complicated that you just can't really take any uh, reassurance from the fact that, let's say, this population, this short-lived population uh, and what happens to the ecosystem uh, would be the same in a real gene drive 
scenario. Because species live in different environments. Yeah, exactly. They interact with different species exactly. in different parts of their range. Exactly, so yeah. You can never know for sure, but we live in an uncertain world. Yeah, yeah. That's the bottom line. And so how much do we have to know in order to minimize those risks to the point that we think the benefits are worth it? Right. And in some cases, it's going to be more obvious than others. So malaria, more than 1,000 children died of malaria today. Like, is the small risk that we might mess up something in the, the, by changing the mosquitoes to resist the malaria parasite might affect something else? I mean, I hate to, I hate to be blunt about that, but is that, that's not going to be much comfort to all those mothers who have lost those children today and the ones who are going to lose their children tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. And frankly, it's all very well and good for us to talk about this, but we're not the ones losing our children. So there's an argument that it's not even really up to us at all. We're not going to be impacted one way or another. Indeed. I know that the the fear of gene drives is going to be inversely proportional to our exposure to the the actual ill that the gene drives designed to address. Sadly, our our experience with how people feel about many other technologies definitely does drive that home, as it were. Yeah, yeah. But I I, I want to say, though, that um, while thinking of all these amazingly powerful ways of altering animals and uh, plants in the wild – you and your colleagues there at the Weiss – is it the Weiss Institute? The Weiss. The Weiss Institute and uh, the George Church Lab have been at the forefront of actually raising all the concerns and uh, trying to spur the scientific community to come up with safeguards and, and get regulatory apparatus going to govern this process. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about that. Um, first of all, there is the honor system. I mean that's what most scientists operate on. Uh, you decide yep. what's ethical as a community, and anybody who violates that sort of uh, unofficial agreement is ostracized and suffers you know, professionally. That's one way science controls itself, and it does work in some cases. In some cases. In some cases. And then there's you know, official regulations, getting governments involved, and there are obviously a lot of regulations uh, involving uh, work with dangerous organisms like, you know, like the aforementioned smallpox. Is it is it even experimented with anymore? I don't know, but no. uh, not at no, all. As a rule, as a rule. But then there are right. others. You can you can still uh, run experiments with Ebola in uh, super high level containment facilities, right? Um, so we've got those kinds of rules. What's the state of this with regard to you know these hypothetical gene drives? Do we have any rules at all? So right now, in terms of formal government regulations, the answer is pretty much no. We don't. There are international treaties that prohibit you from deliberately releasing one. Those actually don't bind us in the United States because we don't believe in such things. International treaties, that is. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, you know, will make it easier if we, want, if we decide that we want to go ahead and, and eradicate Lyme disease or something like that. But the reality is that, no, the regulations have not caught up. And that's in part because our regulations, or because the actual laws undergirding the way that we regulate, say, biotech, were written well before we could actually do any form of deliberate genome editing whatsoever. I think the Toxic Substances Control Act. <laughs> so, and, and a gene drive, by the way, if, if it's not in something agriculturally related, is regulated by the FDA as veterinary medicine. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, no, government is not there. So before we ever went public with CRISPR gene drives, we actually met with a lot of government regulators, including folks from the EPA and FDA and USDA and people from NSF, and ecologists, and evolutionary biologists, and ethicists, and representatives from environmental NGOs. 
And what we said was, look, here is what this technology could do. We haven't tested it in the laboratory yet because we don't think it's appropriate to test this in the laboratory before telling people what we think it can do. It's, it's that big of a deal. Society has never before had to deal with a technology that could be developed by a small group of people in a laboratory and yet could affect the lives of many, many other people. So given that, we think that the best course of action is to tell everyone, in part because it is reversible. And so it really is a pretty terrible weapon. That is, it's so easily defended against by building a counter drive. And there's no real way to avoid that, that we don't feel that it's at risk of being weaponized as long as it is known, as long as people know about it. So So we put it out there in front of a bunch of experts. And also there were some national security experts who all agreed with us that the safest course of action that minimized the risk that it would be misused was to tell the world about it. And so we did that. Again, before we ran any experiments building any sort of CRISPR gene drive in the laboratory, and we were criticized for that in the scientific community. There were people that said, well, come on, this hasn't even been tested in the laboratory. We don't even know if it will work. Why are you bringing this up now? Well, because the public discussion should start before the experiments and ideally guide and inform the experiments. I think it is unethical for us to run gene drive experiments in the laboratory without telling people what we are doing. Because we don't run medical research without obtaining informed consent of participants. But if you're building a gene drive in the laboratory and something goes wrong and you screw up and it gets out, you've just impacted the lives of a whole lot of people. And if you didn't even bother to tell them what you were doing, much less ask how they felt about it, to me, that's unconscionable. I hope, I'll, I hope my colleagues agree. We'll see. So, Kevin, are you saying that when you came up with this idea of the CRISPR-based gene drive, after that maybe initial wow moment, you started to think, uh-oh. And uh, before you started talking publicly, you went to your colleagues and said, what are we going to do about the potential downside? That's right. So one of my great fears is that with technology, we don't really determine who discovers technology. The laws of physics and the law of evolution and evolution's redheaded stepchild, capitalism, are the ones that determine which technologies are discovered. And when we, wandering along on the path that they made for us, encounter an interesting-looking box, we open it. We can't help it. If the scientist that first discovers it doesn't open the box, someone else will. And this was also nicely proven in the case of CRISPR gene drives, which were, in fact, we did it in yeast. Um, and, and first reported it in January. And, but in March of that year, a completely independent group that didn't know anything about our work or, wor- or more worrisome, our recommended safeguards that we'd put out, and in fact, not even trying to build a gene drive or even aware of what gene drives were when they did the work. They just wanted to make both versions like moms very easily in the lab. But what they did was they built a CRISPR gene drive. And... That just demonstrates it. This was one that was going to come out no matter what. So what I wanted to do was, since I was pretty sure that I was the first to think of it in that way, I wanted to open the box as carefully as possible so that we have as much control over the consequences as was feasible, given the constraint that someone else would open it eventually. 
So that whole discussion is obviously ongoing and it has a long way to go, but uh, one hopes that both the scientific community, such as it is, and and regulatory agencies, if they're up to it, could come up with a framework for how to begin testing it and maybe ultimately putting it into practice in the wild in very specific cases where the, the dangers are judged to be far, far less than the benefits. But Along with that, you've been thinking of some novel schemes, methods in which you can constrain or reverse the effects of gene drives. Tell us about those tools that you call molecular confinement. Well, there's two different levels of safeguards you can imagine for working with gene drives. One is to build the drive in such a way that it will not spread in the wild. That is, it will only spread in laboratory organisms and never in wild organisms. So that even if you screw up and your organisms get outside the laboratory, it still won't spread. And so long as you're running experiments where you want to understand how the drives work in the laboratory, and you're not deliberately trying to build something to alter wild populations, in my view, you should always use one of these things because they're impervious to human error. There's a couple of different ways, but they all hinge on building the drive in such a way that it only works in laboratory organisms that you have already engineered in some way. So the simplest way is you build a laboratory population of organisms in which you've recoded the sequence of the target gene. So it has synthetic DNA that is not present in the wild population. And then you build the gene drive and instruct it to cut that synthetic sequence. So only these special guinea pigs are vulnerable to the gene drive in the first place. That's right. The other way to do it is CRISPR requires two components. It requires the Cas9 protein, which does the work, and requires the guide RNAs to target it. So if you build a gene drive that only has guide RNAs, say, then that will work just fine in organisms that already all supply Cas9. Uh-huh. But wild ones don't have Cas9. Right. Because it's only in bacteria. Right. So then you can ensure that it only works in the ones that have Cas9 in the laboratory. And that's great because, as I mentioned earlier, we've already put Cas9 in a bunch of different model organisms in the laboratory. So you can just use those particular strains of model organisms for gene drive studies using this split drive concept to ensure that it stays in the lab. So this is how you keep your experimental uh, subjects from affecting the wild populations. But how do you control it once it's out there and things start to go awry, let's say? So again, the really neat thing about CRISPR is you can target pretty much any sequence, which means that you can build a second gene drive that will target and overwrite the first gene drive, including undoing whatever genetic edit that it carried. So to be clear, it's not a perfect undo button because you still need a gene drive components to spread your second drive. But it does let you undo whatever genetic change you put into the organism that is causing the, the effect that is the problem. Because in general, the CRISPR system alone doesn't do anything. So you've uh, created a bunch of Franken-mosquitoes, and things have gone in a direction you didn't anticipate. So you release a whole new set of CRISPR-equipped mosquitoes that remove that Franken gene. Right. So if even despite all of your safety testing, it turns out you are wrong, to, to quote Jurassic Park, life finds a way, which is true if you give it enough time. The idea is we don't give it enough time. Yeah. But if, if it does happen and you're wrong and something, something goes wrong, then you should have already built what we call a reversal drive that will undo the problematic change. Because again, the chain, 
you know, the, the effect on the organism and the ecosystem comes, should come from the change, not the CRISPR system. The CRISPR system is just the drive component. So if you have a reversal drive that will undo that change, then you should be able to mitigate the damage, at least if you already have the reversal drive ready, ready to go. Yeah. So as a general rule, at least my personal rule, and I have been shouting this from the rooftops at all my, all my colleagues, if you are ever building a gene drive that could spread in the wild, that is, if you're not using the molecular containment that we outlined, then you should always, in parallel, build the reversal drive to undo whatever change you're making. Boy, I can already hear uh, someone in Hollywood pitching this story. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's been some talk. There's been some talk. Um, uh, and I got to admit, this, though this sounds comforting, I'm still worried about those high school students. That's the thing that scares me the most, uh, the DIY nature, the cheap, easy DIY nature. Now, you've made it clear that actually introducing a gene drive into a complicated organism especially into the germline of a complicated organism so that it's perpetuated uh, from generation to generation, is no mean feat. So we shouldn't start worrying about the home hobbyist yet, right? But, That's right. But down the line, a lot of people who, who worry for a living have started to fear that biotech is becoming uh, too easy, too cheap, too accessible, and uh, all kinds of things could happen. I wanted to ask you, though, uh, one question that's highly speculative. Maybe it's it's not even uh, worthy, and you can tell me. But um, our genomes really are laboratories. I mean, I don't think there's anything in nature in which so much novelty and so much creativity is spontaneously going on. And anything that can happen, as I think they say in, in quantum mechanics, will happen sooner or later, Right. Um, so if you're I'm, willing to wait longer than the lifetime of the universe. Yeah, yeah maybe sure. so. That's true. <laughs> but I'm wondering, though, if that's so, and it seems to be so, why hasn't a gene drive like the CRISPR one that you've dreamed up, why hasn't that already occurred? And why hasn't it taken over populations? It already has. It has? So as I mentioned, gene drives, and as Austin Bird outlined them, what he proposed was, hey, this sort of scissors-based gene drive exists in the wild. If we could repurpose it, we could use it to, for the betterment of humanity. But why hasn't this system run amok in the wild? I guess that's really what I'm wondering. Once you get these scissors going full blast uh, in the most selfish of selfish gene ways. So Austin's theory, since he looked at this and is actually a specialist, was originally a specialist in the yeast where this system was first discovered, is that, and this makes a lot of sense when you think about it, if a gene drive, scissors-based gene drive were to appear in a exclusively sexually reproducing organism, it's going to spread to the whole population in a few dozen generations. And then there's going to be nowhere for it to go. It's going to be present in every member of the population. And so there's, no going, there's not going to be any more selection pressure for it to remain functional. It's going to break. And in order to remove the cost of the gene drive, the organism is just going to delete it entirely. Really? It's not going to go into some steady state where it just remains constant? Well, so it's going to go to fixation, and, but then remember that you need a, in order to maintain the activity of that enzyme, you need a very specific DNA sequence. Yeah. And if you're not actively selecting for that, then through constant background mutation, it's going to break over time. And eventually, due to small deletions and sometimes larger deletions and so on, eventually you're just going to lose whole chunks of it until eventually the whole thing is going to be gone. 
And unless that restores the exact original target site, and there is still a working copy somewhere, then that means that the gene drive is, is evolutionarily extinct. It's gone. Ah, I but to say they're so effective in exclusively sexually reproducing organisms, at least the scissors-based method, that they don't exist in nature. Because whenever one arises, it goes extinct. Mm -hmm. It's too good. But they're present in yeast because yeast only reproduce sexually every once in a while. And so they're, they don't sweep to fixation so fast. And so they have time to be lost and to reinvade, you know, invade a, a nearby species with a similar sequence. The asexual component delays things long enough for them to stick around on an evolutionary timescale. Because that's the thing when you're thinking about evolution. The timescales that we are interested in are an eye blink to evolution. Evolutionary time is practically geological time, whereas human civilization, I mean, we're, you know, a few seconds from midnight in the history of, in the history of life. So we have to keep that in mind, and that at the end of the day, even with a gene drive, natural selection will have its way. Even when we mess things up and shuffle species around hither, thither, and cause mass extinctions, there have been mass extinctions before, and the Permian was hopefully at least far worse than anything that we could do. In the long run, natural selection always wins. But natural selection is cruel, or at least, if not cruel, it has no moral compass. And so the question becomes, should we do something because we will it, because we, because we are moral, because we do care, to, one might say, tame it a bit, make life a little bit of more of a garden, less red and tooth and claw? <sighs> should we learn to speak nature's language and then tell nature to be a little bit nicer? That's a pretty profound philosophical question for our species. And, but I think it's one that we need to start thinking about because we need to make these decisions together. And that can only happen, by the way, if all of my colleagues are equally committed to early stage transparency. That is, like we're doing, if they also disclose what they are doing publicly before they start doing it. And so that's my challenge to all of my colleagues, perpetually, from now on, is to do that just like us, so that people do have a chance to weigh in and decide, because it's ultimately not up to us. This is the shared environment. This is, in many ways, our environmental heritage that we all depend upon, that we all share a responsibility for passing on in a healthy and as intact fate as we can manage to our children. And so we all have to decide what we're going to do about it together. The greatest risk is not technical. It is not ecological. It is that we will fail to come together to decide whether, when, and how to use this to make a better world. We are living in the Anthropocene and there's no going back. We might as well face up to it, right? That's one way of looking at it. It's, so, it's a sort of depressing one. <laughs> well, no, I'm saying that, look, we're, we're already altering evolution uh, through our actions, uh, usually unintended uh, and, and, and sort of recklessly. In, in massive ways. I mean, we are causing uh, mass extinctions right now. Yes. We are causing uh, new evolutionary pressures that are steering, uh, that will steer, you know, untold species in new directions uh, through climate change and other huge environmental yes. impacts. So we're already doing it. 
So um, all you're saying is uh, now that we're stuck with this reality, uh, we might as well face up to it and get a little more responsible and a little more intentional, right? One bit of wisdom from George Church is that doing nothing is also a choice. And it's a choice we can make. And in many cases, it's the choice we should make. But not all. We can't pretend that we haven't already messed things up because we have messed things up. And this is one potential way of helping to remedy the situation. And there are some cases where we don't have any other alternative apart from letting things continue to slide. In Hawaii, we're going to lose most of the native honeycreepers, beautiful birds, to bird malaria, which is spread by mosquitoes that we introduced to Hawaii. Before the 18th century, there were no mosquitoes in Hawaii. We introduced them. And they've been killing all the native birds so that these honeycreepers can only live at high altitudes where it's too cold for the mosquitoes. And now we're warming the planet. So the birds have less and less habitat every year. We're going to lose them by 2050. And we can't use insecticides to control the mosquitoes because there's 80 or so species of endangered insects on Hawaii. So we either use some form of genetic technology. It might not have to be a gene drive. But we use some form of biotech to save these birds or we let them go extinct and we will have killed them. That's the choice. We can do nothing or we can do something. But choices aren't always pleasant. Hmm. Sometimes you just have to sometimes you just have to look at it squarely and do your best. Well, Kevin, what's next for you in terms of actually experimenting with gene drives? I am primarily interested in developing the nematodes as a test system because I think it would be foolish of us to release anything into the wild before we have an understanding of how these things are going to evolve over time and whether they're likely to spread into related species. And since and, uh, nematodes are on fast-forward, they're a great way to figure it out, huh? Exactly, exactly. Fast-forward and easy to grow in really, really large numbers because, again, evolution, drawing us back to the beginning, if you want to harness evolution for your own ends, the way to maximize its creativity is to throw as much at the wall as you can because only a few of it, well, a little bit is going gonna, is gonna to stick. So... You want very, very, very large populations, and you want very, very fast generations. So nematodes give you that for gene drives. So I'm interested in doing that. I'm interested in exploring with, again, in a community-guided, completely transparent fashion, entirely nonprofit, no for-profit involvement whatsoever, totally open in every way, whether we should consider the question of Lyme. Because I have a two-year-old son. We just bought a house. Backyard faces out onto woodlands. My wife's a pediatrician. She sees a lot of Lyme disease. It'd be great if we could do something about that. Mm. I have a personal stake. Mm. And so I'm interested in the question of should we consider that one? And more broadly, I think this is a rare opportunity for us to change the way that we do science. To put science more in tune with what society wants to put more control in the hands of the people, and to make science, frankly, much more efficient. Because right now, all the incentives are wrong for us. That is, we're all always incentivized to do things in secret, not tell any of our colleagues what we're doing, and then only reveal it all at once in a publication, which still, despite the open access movement, as often as not, is in a journal which you have to pay to read. Right. And these are experiments done with taxpayer dollars. So your money is being spent funding our research why do we do it in secret? And I'm not even talking about moving to open access or 
posting pre journals or even posting preprints as soon as the experiment is ready, why aren't we sharing what we're doing with everyone while we're doing it? The only way to know your impact as a scientist is to compare what you've done to the imagined world in which you'd never worked on that project. And a key variable there is how long would it have taken for somebody else to do it? But you can never actually know that because they might never have published anything on it if you were the first by long enough. And we can never know what other people are working on. I would be delighted to know what all my colleagues are working on, not so that I can scoop them, but so I can work on something else. If they're doing it, then I don't have to. I should do something that no one else is doing. We can only do that if we're transparent about what we're working on. We're more collaborative. We love doing this when we go to conferences, but all of a sudden, when we leave the conference, we all, we all clam up because that's the incentive. But if we want community-guided science, and I think with gene drives, morally speaking, we have to have community-guided science, then we have to be transparent from an early stage. So one of my main missions is going to be ensuring that gene drive science, at least, is transparent and community-guided. And if that can spread to the rest of science, that'd be great. You mean if you can implant a kind of um, meme drive in the human brain? Shh, you're giving away the scheme. <laughs> Kevin, it has been great talking to you, and, and uh, happy sculpting. Thank you. Kevin Esfelt is a technology development fellow at the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard Medical School. His website is sculptingevolution.org. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. Our website is 7thAvenueProject.com, where you can listen to past episodes and learn more, or you can listen on iTunes or via your favorite podcast app. So long, until next week. Music